So, just another week in the life of Pastor Clark. First, I was coming into town this week, and I noticed the car in front of me lost control, went through the ditch, rolled into the field. I thought I noticed flames in the engine, so I was able to get a mother and her young child out of the vehicle before it burst into flames. The next day, I'm just eating lunch at a restaurant, and I hear what sounds like choking behind me. I turn around, and there's a man, his his face was red clearly. He was choking. So I got him behind him, gave him a couple squeezes, dislodged the meat that was choking him. Friday evening, I'm headed home. I'm just trying to get gas and get home. And in the bay next to me, a fight breaks out. I, together with another guy, were able to intervene, settle things down, de-escalate it, till the police arrived. A day, a week in the life of Pastor Clark. No, you're going to want to take your applause back. Because here's the deal. None of that happened. None of that happened. It's just an ordinary week. Get up. Go to work, do my thing, drive home, eat supper, watch a little TV, maybe go outside, go to bed. Next day, do it all over again. Because most of life is like that. You read the book of Acts, and it seems like Crazy things are happening every single day. I remember hearing John Stott say, wherever the Apostle Paul went, they had a riot. Wherever I go, they serve tea. (laughs) It does seem that way. But it's easy in these narratives to lose track of enormous amounts of time where it was just Another ordinary day. Paul would make tents till about 11 o'clock in the morning. Probably did teaching during what they would see as the siesta time. Till about 4 o'clock, make tents until evening, eat supper, go to bed. The overwhelming majority of his life was like that. I understand we gather together. We worship. We encourage one another. We learn from the word. Maybe we put on our nice clothes and we show up. But our Christian lives are not lived out here. They're lived out in the most ordinary circumstances of life. They're lived out every day 
in blue jeans. So if you're serious about being faithful, you have to learn to be faithful in the ordinary or you're not going to be faithful at all. That's what we want to talk about this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with us to Acts chapter 20. Last week, Jeff took us through the amazing moments in the city of Ephesus. Crazy things happening. Seemingly magic handkerchiefs. Demons pounce on people and beat them up. This amazing drama in the theater. It seems like every day in the life of the Apostle Paul is extraordinary. But chapter 20 couldn't be more different. Verse 1, after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. When he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through those districts and had given them exhortation, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and Aristarchus, and Secundus of the Thessalonians, Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days. And there we stayed seven days. So let's imagine that you're reading this at home in your quiet time, or this is the text that your Bible study is studying. This is one of those passages you read and you look at each other like, what do you do with this? He went from here to here. Then he went from here to here. Then he went from here to there. Oh, and he took some people with him. It's easy to lose track of how much time passes and how many days were just ordinary. So once things settle down in Ephesus, Paul gathers the disciples, gives them a final exhortation or words of encouragement, and moves on. It is worth noting how often in the book of Acts, the believers are referred to as disciples. It's a reminder that the Great Commission was not go and make converts. It was go and make disciples. It was not go distribute a ticket to heaven. It was build Christ followers. There's a huge difference between a convert and a disciple. The plan was to change the world. Paul did not do this by holding evangelistic crusades. He did this by planting churches. The difference between addition and multiplication is significant. Let me see if I can illustrate this and let me see if I can get it right this morning because I made a mess of it last evening. So this is addition. This is converts. This is distributing a ticket. 
Let's imagine that we as a church were able to reach a thousand people per year. We're distributing a ticket to heaven. In order to reach the city of Lincoln, it would take us 300 years. But now let's imagine multiplication. So let's just take 3,000 of us who over the course of a year, each of us just reached one person and brought that one person into the life of the church to be discipled. At the end of the year, we would have 6,000 disciples. If we all agreed to do that again, we would have 12,000 disciples. It would take us roughly seven years to reach the population of Lincoln. When Paul was going through these areas, it was to plant churches and make disciples because that was God's plan to change the world. Ryan just said it a few minutes ago that we come together to know Jesus, to become more like him, and to help others do the same. It's a vision for discipleship. So Paul leaves Ephesus, and the text tells us he went to Macedonia, and then he went to Greece. Might be interesting to know that represents about a year and a half of time. And that's all Luke says. We know from 2 Corinthians in the book of Romans a few more details. We know that Paul left Ephesus and actually went to Troas. He was hoping there to meet Titus. He had sent Titus with what Paul called a severe letter to the church in Corinth because the church in Corinth was a mess. He was hoping then to meet Titus in Troas to find out how the Corinthians received the letter. But Titus never showed up. So Paul himself said that he was so troubled, he was so restless, even though he had an open door in Troas, he couldn't focus, so he moved on. He moved on to Macedonia, which would be Thessalonians, Berea, uh, and Philippi. Likely he spent most of his time in Philippi because it was the safest for reasons we talked about in chapter 16. We know while in Philippi, Titus finally caught up with him and shared with him that the Corinthians actually received the letter well. Paul then writes 2 Corinthians from Philippi and sends it to the Corinthians. He eventually then leaves and goes to Greece, specifically to the city of Corinth. And he stays there three months. Probably the three winter months, December, January, February. While there, he writes the book of Romans. We're then told about seven men who are going to join the team. Most of the names are unfamiliar. We know that one of the main 
purposes of this missionary journey was to take a collection from these Gentile churches in order to send a gift to their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who were not only being persecuted, but were suffering a famine. So the vision was for these Gentile churches to give an offering for relief and to deliver it to their Jewish brothers and sisters. Really a beautiful picture of the church. It's believed then that each of these individuals represented their church and carried their offering and they would all ultimately meet in Troas and then end up going to Jerusalem. We also learn that at this point, Luke rejoins the team. So I mentioned in chapter 16, you have what we call the we passages, where Luke includes himself among the team. We did this. Many people think Luke was actually from Philippi, and it's almost certain that Luke took his medical training at the medical school in Philippi. So it appears that when the team moved on from Philippi in chapter 16, Luke remained. Now, as the team has come back through Philippi, Luke once again joins them. They sail from Philippi after staying there for Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The desire, then, from Corinth is to get on a ship and go all the way across the Mediterranean and end up in Antioch of Syria and then to Jerusalem, hopefully by Passover. But Paul learns of a plot to kill him. That ship would have been most likely filled with religious Jews wanting to get to Jerusalem in time for the Passover. So the plan apparently was to get him on the ship, get in the middle of the Mediterranean, kill him, pitch him overboard. So as a result of that, he chooses to go back through Macedonia, ends up in Philippi, remains there for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, then makes his way to uh, Troas. So Luke even tells us that the trip took five days. What's interesting about that is they took this exact same trip, chapter 16, and it took two days. It's just the reminder of details related to weather and conditions and a two-day trip. Now it was a five-day trip and all the monotony in the life of Paul that isn't recorded. Roughly what's discussed there in those six verses is probably about two years. And we know next to nothing. Ordinary, everyday stuff. Verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. And he prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we had gathered together. And there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. 
But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. When he had gone back up and broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while after daybreak, and then left. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. So can you imagine what it would be like to have the great apostle Paul in your little group teaching you directly what you need to know about Jesus? He was in Troas for seven days. This was the last day. He was leaving in the morning. So he was going to pull an all-nighter and maximize the time to disciple these believers. Now, sometimes we read things in the Bible and we find ourselves struggling to believe this could possibly be true. And this is one of those texts. How could it be possible that the preacher would preach on and on into the night, and as a result of that, a teenager would actually fall asleep. (laughs) Unbelievable. The word used, the young man, the Greek word there, is a word that would describe someone between the ages of 7 and 14. So he's a teenager. Paul's speaking well into the night, The teenager's sitting on the windowsill. He eventually falls asleep, falls out the window, falls three floors. They rush down. I'm going to guess Luke is the one that picked him up and pronounced him dead because he was a medical doctor. But then Paul embraces him and raises him back to life. You would think that there would be a significant emphasis on this amazing moment where Paul brought someone back to life. As a matter of fact, there's only eight times in the Bible where someone is brought back to life. This is the last of the eight times. But the way Luke records this is very interesting. There's no detail. Paul just declares he's back to life. They go back upstairs, have a little supper, and he teaches till morning. I think Luke is intending to remind us that most of these days in the life of Paul, they were not filled with crazy things happening. They were just pretty ordinary. As he faithfully built the church to change the world. I think at the end of verse 12, when it says Paul left and the people were comforted, they were comforted for two reasons. They were comforted because the boy was alive, but they were comforted more because that was uh, a way to validate that Paul was from God. These people's lives would be very dangerous because of their commitment to follow Christ. They were going to head into persecution. They needed to know this is true, isn't it? The miracles are meant to validate 
the messenger and the message. So in that moment when he teaches them all night, there is this amazing moment when Paul demonstrates he is indeed from God, raises this boy back from the dead, but immediately goes back and teaches until morning. Verse 13, but we were going ahead to the ship, set sail for Assos, intending from there to take Paul on board. For he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, he took him on board and came to Mylene. Sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios. And the next day we crossed over to Samos. And the day following we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus that he would not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So Luke and the rest of the team board a ship that is going to work its way down the coast. Those names are just little ports all the way along the coastline until you get down into the Mediterranean. So this was very common. You stop at all these little ports, pick up what you need to pick up, get onto the Mediterranean, and off to Syria. But the time to do that, and typically they sailed at night when the winds were more favorable, was fairly significant. So Paul chooses to walk. So he puts him on the ship. He himself is going to walk. It's about 20 miles. He could easily make that in a day. So actually, Paul's going to arrive way before they arrive. There's a lot of speculation as to why he did that. But I think what makes the most sense is this is really the last opportunity. He has to get away by himself and get his game face on because he knows he's headed to Jerusalem. And likely in Jerusalem, he will be arrested. Likely he'll appeal to Rome. And this is probably the end of the story. It's very interesting when you read Luke's gospel. is a very clear record of Jesus's final trip into Jerusalem. Luke is also the author of the book of Acts. And you have a very similar pattern of the final trip of Paul into Jerusalem. So this is probably his last chance to get away, to get his game face on, to spend time with Jesus before he boards the ship and that final journey begins. The text tells us he intentionally did not go to Ephesus. He had spent about three years there. For a variety of reasons, he's in a hurry and doesn't want to get caught up there again. The text tells us the main reason is because he's in a hurry, because he wants to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. So Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. So we know he's already spent 16 of those days. So the clock is ticking and he's in a hurry. One question would be, 
Why did Paul continue to celebrate these Jewish feasts? And I think there's several reasons for that. One is because he was Jewish. This is something that had been part of his life all his life. It's a little bit like Christmas. It's just a part of the rhythm of the culture. But I think more than that, there was no reason to unnecessarily offend his Jewish brothers and sisters. He wanted to reach these people. He wanted to talk to them about Jesus. There's nothing gained by unnecessarily offending them. But I think mostly, if all your life you celebrated these great feasts, there were three of them in the Jewish calendar, and now you had come to understand that Jesus was the fulfillment of what these feasts represented. They would become so much richer, so much deeper, and a strategic opportunity. Thousands of Jews would flood into Jerusalem for these feasts. It was a prime opportunity to explain to his fellow Jewish people that Jesus was the fulfillment of each of these feasts. Roughly what's covered in our text this morning is about three years. And we have almost no detail. This is the most nondescript text in the book of Acts. Here's what he did. He went from here to here. Then he went from here to here. And then he went here to here. Most of Paul's life was not these dramatic moments. Most of it was very ordinary. As he built the church to change the world. Most of our Christian life is not going to be lived on the mountaintop. Nobody lives that way. Most of it's lived in ordinary moments in blue jeans. If we don't learn what it means to be faithful in the everyday moments of life, we won't be faithful. Think of it this way. You can't have the mountaintop if you aren't willing to take the journey. But people today don't like that. Let me illustrate it this way. It's easy to come and look at these very talented musicians and think, I wish I could do that. I wish I could play the piano like that. I wish I could play the violin. And it's easy to forget the years and years and years of practice. Nobody's applauding. Nobody's impressed. Nobody even knows. 
But you don't get to those moments on the stage without all those years of practice. Similar in the business world. It's easy to look at someone who's built a business and say, oh, I wish I had that. I wish I had their money. I wish I had their business. I wish I had their stuff. But it's easy to lose sight of the years and years and years and years of hard work, of dedication, of being faithful in the ordinary stuff that's necessary to build a business. We live in a culture where people want the reward, but they don't want the sacrifice. People want the applause, but they don't want to practice. People want the mountaintop, but they don't want the journey to get there. And it just doesn't work that way. So as we think about life in the ordinary, I want to ask you just a couple of honest questions. These days, honestly, are you living life? Or are you just trying to stay alive? These days, are you redeeming the time and investing in the days? Or are you just wasting days and passing the time? Do you understand that every day is a gift? And it's a day you'll never get back. I can't even imagine how many days have been wasted in the last year and a half. There's no shortage of things to be frustrated with. There's no shortage of things to be angry about. But if that puts you in a frame of mind where you're just wasting days, that is a tragedy. When this thing hit, you could kind of see where it's all going. And I remember making a determination that no matter what happens, I will not waste days. I won't. Every day is a gift, and every day is a gift you do not get back. I understand my calling. I understand what God's asking of me. No matter what anybody else says, I will not waste days. I won't. And I'll figure out how to do that, whatever the circumstances. Most of our Christian life is going to be lived out in blue jeans. Ordinary, everyday moments. But you never know when an ordinary day may become something more. Several years ago, Patty and I, one evening, were at Barnes and Noble. As is typical, she was rummaging through the books, and I was back in the music section. 
And I happened to notice middle-aged, nicely dressed woman. She had the headphones on. She was sitting on one of those little stools listening to something. But I just happened to notice there were a couple tears coming down her cheek. I thought maybe she had just been moved by the music. But I did wonder. Pretty soon, she just started to weep. She took the headphones off, hung them on the peg that's there, put her head down, and just wept. When she regained her composure, I sat on the little stool next to her. I said, ma'am, is there anything I can do to help you? She looked at me and she said, are you a pastor? I said, as a matter of fact, I am. She stared at me for a minute, then she said, Pastor, if I was to kill myself tonight, would I go to hell? I said, are you thinking about doing that? She just hung her head and stared at the floor. Over the next 45 minutes to an hour, we talked. Talked about what was going on in her life, what was happening. Got her to a point where I felt like she was stable. I connected her with some people that I thought could help her. And I remember walking out that evening, thankful that I had been there, and thankful I didn't miss my moment. Because a pretty ordinary day turned into something quite different. If we're going to dare to be the church, that means we dare to be the church in the most ordinary moments. Because most of our life is lived there. And if we're going to be faithful to our call, you have to learn to be faithful in the most ordinary moments because you never know. When an ordinary moment may become something quite different. Our Father, we're thankful that you have called us to make a difference in this world. Lord, may we understand our calling and be true to that calling. May we be your church in difficult times. God, may we be faithful in the most ordinary moments that we might see the opportunities you give us to make a significant difference in the life of someone in need. In Jesus' name, amen.